Hello. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Dan Benjamin. What's up? Oh, well, just a busy morning. Busy, yeah, busy, busy what's, morning. What's going on? What's been on the uh, the morning's docket? Well, you know, I'm now completely kicked out of my house. No, uh, what ha- I, I, the last we talked uh, last week, you said everything was staged. Yep. But I didn't everything know Everything that- was staged except for one last place where I could be. Oh. Then they staged <laughs> it all around me, and uh-huh. now <clears throat> there's no place. In fact, as I was leaving the house today, I was like, where are my keys? And nobody had an answer. They were not where they were supposed to be. And my suspicion is that they got staged somewhere. Even and even so your had, keys have been staged. My key, my keys have been staged. And then so I left and I ran over without really any clear house key to yeah. get back into the house. Yeah. I ran over to the Montessori school uh, where I'm considering transferring my child right and uh had an uh, you know sat and talked with the principal and uh the elementary school teachers and then i raced from the montessori school to here to talk to you but i am not at my house i am in the basement of my daughter's mother's house so it's going to have a very different reverb mm. characteristic check this out Lot different, lot of yeah, uh, different. Super different. It's crazy yeah. different. That's yeah, it's super super I'll, different. Uh, so I'll see if I can't EQ you back to normal. Thanks. But what's weird is I moved my giant podcasting desk and podcasting chairs into the basement of my daughter's mother's house, mm-hmm. and so I'm sitting in a familiar chair at a familiar table, <laughs> right? In an unfamiliar environment. Uh-huh. So really, this this chair, this table, this paddleball game, and this laptop computer are the only things. I mean, they're my home now, basically. Yeah. Dan, these are the only familiar things in my life. Uh, will you never be back in that house again? Like sleeping there again? Is it? Are you really, truly gone? Well, no, because wh- I'm out of the house today because they are... They have staged it to be photographed by a professional real estate photographer. Now, that real estate photographer has to take those photographs and turn them into those magic real estate photographs where everything looks bigger and weirdly (laughs) fish Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, that that takes time. Oh, yeah. And so, so then there will be some interregnum. Of a week, probably, while they, while they put the listing together and then they make it go live before they start giving tours, mm-hmm. you know, before they start having open houses. Now, at the point at which customers are coming through the house to look at it, to imagine themselves living in it, then I cannot be, I cannot be right. There no, I'm, that makes perfect sense. But in the short term between like today and a week from now, I fully intend to move back into my perfectly staged house. Yeah. Living there like a weird phantom of the opera. Um, until I am, I am like instructed not to be there. And you know, Ken Jennings has said, why don't you come live with me? Cause they have a guest room in the basement, but I feel like that's, um, Part of him trying to get me to become a Mormon. 
Oh. Then he's going to say, why don't we go to church together? Are they, I mean, are, are Mormons the... Oh, he's not going to do that. No, I'm kidding. It's are an incredibly they, well, no, generous offer. Well, no, I'm curious. Are they the kind of person that wants to convert? Like, is that there? Because I know that, I know that there are other... I don't know the right word, not faction, but div, div, denomination, is that the right word? Yeah. The denominations of, of religions where their goal or one of their goals is to convert people. I had a friend who was a Jehovah's Witness, a very good friend who's a Jehovah's Witness, and he, he told me that it's very, very much a part of their, uh, their daily MO to, to witness to people as often as possible and that... Um, he said, he said, well, I, I said, you've never witnessed to me, Dave. And he said, uh, well, you're Jewish. And I said, That's well, right. so what has that got to do with anything? And he, he said, we can't convert you. And I said, oh. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And I'm not practicing or anything. He said, but it doesn't matter. He's like, there's, there, they, we can't get Jews. We just can't. He's like, if, if Jehovah, he, he would call them JWs. He would say, if yes. the JWs ever come to your door, just tell them you're Jewish. And they'll leave. I said, uh-huh. really? He's like, yeah, this is, this is a known thing. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. But do Mormons do that too? Well, so my understanding is, um, I thought you had to, ma- the, I thought they just married you and converted you that way. I think within the Abrahamic religions, um, only the, Jews are not that into conversion. Oh, they're like, a- the against other- conversion. There's specific, yeah. like if you, let's just say you, you were, you were a Jewish man and you met a, a, a nice uh, Shiksa girl who you wanted to, um, you wanted to marry. Sure. Just you, theoretically, let's just say that was, you that would ever. have, you would have to yeah. convert her in order for her yes. to, and, and that's usually there's a, there's a thing where if you go to the rabbi and say, I'd like to convert, they tell you no. And then you're supposed to come back two more times. You're supposed to ask three times total. Please let me convert. Nope. This just, and they tell, they'll give you a million reasons why you shouldn't. They'll send you on your way. And if you come back a third time and ask a third time, then at that point, they're like, okay, fine. Suddenly you want to be Jewish. All right. You can be Jewish. <laughs> and then they, they start, you know, they circumcise you right there on the spot. Sure, sure, I know, with a <laughs> with a garden tool. Right, whatever he's got handy. I think the Christian tradition and the Islamic tradition both it's it's written right into the right into the founding texts that part of your job is to go out and spread the word. Right. And get people to join you in your um holy matrimony. I think Buddhism is pretty open to people joining Buddhism. Oh yeah, very much so. But Whereas there's no Hinduism there, no is a little bit more like meh, not really. They don't want you. You don't you don't you don't see a lot of Hindus like out converting people to no. Hinduism. No, not enough. But yeah, the Jews are like, no, stay away, get out. Right. We've got an, we've got enough problems without you joining the religion. But you know, the Mormons are famous. They send missionaries. I mean, like teenagers or young. Sure, right, 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 go, yeah. Go on a mission. The whole point of it is to go to go for, to far-flung places and convert pre- people to Mormonism. I thought they were just setting up churches and like, like no. they play a movie, and then at the end of the movie, they're like, 
We're, we're not going to show you the last 10 minutes of the movie yet. We just want to talk to you a little bit about this Mormon thing, and then we'll finish up with the movie. And then you finish the movie, and you, if you leave, fine. If you stay and you want to convert, fine. But they're not knocking on doors, are they? Maybe they are. I don't know. Oh, they sure are. Okay. They're going door to door. And the thing is, I think for a long time, uh, or at least for a while there in the 20th century, Mormonism was the fastest growing religion. But I think that, um, I think that if you count growth as a component of like widespread birth, I think Islam is growing faster than any other religion because mm-hmm. more and more people are being borned. Ah. Not born, not born again, but just borned it in the, into the, into the universe. Sure. Uh, but so, um, but I don't think that, that uh, Ken is interested in me becoming a Mormon. It seems, I think to everyone who knows me, has that, he met, has he met you before? Yeah, that's right. That, 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 that the die is somewhat cast <laughs> somewhat in terms of. <laughs> in terms of whether or not I would be willing to adopt an entirely new belief system. No, or, or any belief system. <laughs> he, he, uh, <laughs> he's very generous and he has a wonderful basement room, but no, I'm going to have to find a place to live Dan, uh, for some indeterminate amount of time. Because if my house sells to uh, the thing is, I think if I'm out of the house for a week and they sell it, mm-hmm. then I can move back into it. Until the until the closing date, yeah, yeah, sure. So I could live in there for a whole nother month. So I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm still, I still have one toe in the door of my own home, right? (sighs) What you want is you, you don't want to get too quick of a closing then, because you're going to need to find that other place. That's right. You know, so if they're like, oh, we could close the end of the month, you're like, I need an, uh, I need two months. I don't, I, I, yeah. Yeah, it's none of this is fun. You know, you yeah, know, it's you, not. well, I've never, I've house. never had to like stay out of my own house though. No, but you have gone through a real estate transaction. Oh, heck yes. Way too many times. And they're not, they're, nothing about them is fun. I'm hoping that when, when I uh, come out the other side of this and am in a new house somewhere that I'll just live there for a while and mm. not have to think about any of this. And then the next time I move after that, I'll be moving into a sailboat or a GMC RV or maybe, I mean, God forbid that I'd be moving into prison. Hopefully I can continue to stay out of prison. It's never a guarantee though, Dan. You're not doing anything that would land you there. I don't, it doesn't seem like right now. No, it's not, but I'm very impulsive. Uh, I think you've outgrown that. I think you're wiser now, older and wiser. That's true. There are, I, I bet you, I wonder if there's a, what, how you would measure the percentage of people who are in prison who like 24 hours before they did the thing that landed them in prison, there, no one in their world, including themselves would have ever imagined they would be in prison. Hmm. Right. Like they were just doing their thing. Everybody was like, they're great. And then something happened. an unusual event in their lives, a weird moment. And the next thing they knew they were in prison. Like somebody at an airport said, Hey, would you watch my bag for a second? (laughs) And then all of a sudden they were swarmed by feds. Yeah. Or a thing where, you know, that where somebody said, look, 
you can get in on this really good deal buy this really great stock and all you have to do is just do this one like slightly questionable thing that i'm sure is fine and then the next thing they know they're surrounded by federal agents Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean it happens it happens I will. What do you think if you were going to, if there was a, if there was a way that you would surprise end up in prison, what do you think that would be? What, what, what would be the way that they would, that they would nab you? Oh, (sighs) speeding, but I don't speed anymore now. (laughs) I don't think you can go to prison for speeding. Uh, I, that would have been, that would have been in the old days. That would have been my answer because that was something that. Uh, that, that I used to have a real problem with. And I continued to have a problem with until I bought a truck and then the truck changed me. It changed everything about me. And I, uh, I, I stopped speeding. I started enjoying the day more looking around more of the windows open more. And, uh, and, and I don't, I don't speed anymore. I haven't sped for a long time now. So it's, that changed me. That was a major upgrade in my quality of life. I don't get angry at people on the road very much anymore. Uh, so speeding, no, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm not. You, you, you don't speed anymore? No, I don't speed anymore. Hmm. But I had to buy a different vehicle to make, <laughs> to make it stop. You would have think that when the judge sentenced me to driving school um, that I would have learned my lesson. And I did. I mean, I, br- I stopped aggressively speeding. Uh, that was when I was 21 years ago, 21 years old when I, that happened to me. So I did improve, but it didn't really, I didn't really come to terms with it until in a little bit when I became a parent, because I was like, well, you know, people are counting on me. I don't want to take any risks. So that helped, but it, I didn't completely shake the habit until later, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think, I don't think I'd be interesting enough for prison. Well, I mean, that's what a lot of white collar criminals think. You'd end up in one of those tennis court prisons. If I had to go, I would rather it be the the kind where it's basically just, you know, like a country club where you can't leave it. You know, that would be all right right. if I had to go. And that's the kind of thing, like if I was going (laughs) to, if I was going to commit a crime, I would want it to be as white collar of a crime as possible uh, because then I would definitely wind up in one of those kinds of prisons. You know, I would not, I would not do a violent crime. Okay. I have, I, I, I can think of something if I'm really reaching, I can think of something. Um, we have these great stand your ground laws and stuff like that in, in Texas. I could imagine that somebody tries to, uh, break into my house at night, threatens my family, and I uh, defend myself and my family with deadly force. And somehow, in one of those bizarre cases, that like the the person who's breaking into the house somehow sues the homeowner of the house they were breaking into for like an injury that they sustained during the break in. And then I would wind up in prison because of some technicality or something. <laughs> that's, that's like my biggest fear about They'd that. They'd stub their toe and you would. Yeah, but I've know. heard about, have you heard? Of, there have been cases like this, like someone breaks in and then the, the homeowner like stabs them or shoots them or something. And then they sue the homeowner for like 
injury and neglect and that person winds up going in prison. That's happened. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What would you do that would put you in prison? Oh, so many things. Really still? So many things. I told, yeah, I told Merlin just, I, b- I bought a sword, so that scenario seems more likely than ever. I mean, it just seems like I might get caught up in something. You know what I mean? Caught like up a in neighbor some kind of, asks you to help move a body or something? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe that. Or like, let's say I'm driving down. You know, I do, do a lot of driving around at night in the dark, kind of down down dirt roads. Let's say I... Uh, Let's say I have a no country for old men moment where I find a drug deal going wrong. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd be very, I would, it would, I would get drawn into that scenario pretty fast. But that Things so far you haven't committed any crimes. Um, you know, just, just going no. to get a bag of money that's been left under a tree somewhere. It, uh, it's, it's, it's that, it's that you get on a slippery slope because then you got the bag of money and then somebody comes out and they're, they shoot at you and you shoot at them and then you shoot, then you shoot them and then all of a sudden you've shot somebody and then you got to try and cover that up and then you're part of a cover up and then you have to shoot a third person and pretty soon you're just out there standing in the middle of the road, guns blazing and you're like, how did I get here? How did I end up? How did I end up being uh, being like in a showdown with with a bunch of lawmen? It's like John Rambo never intended. He didn't mean any harm. He was just walking through town. Yeah. He was just passing through. Yeah. He just wanted to be left alone. Um, and uh, so anyway, I don't like to think about it. I'm not. Uh, my intention is not to go to prison. Um, but I just know that, you know, life is life is fairly unpredictable. Yeah, it sure is, isn't it? Dan? Yeah, it life really is. is sure unpredictable. So you're in a situation now where you you you're worried about being put in prison. You have no home. Oh, speaking of uh, weird stuff with your home, a mutual friend of ours uh, was internet creeping on you. Oh, really? And looking, look, driving around your neighborhood virtually in Google uh, Maps. You know, you can drive, you can drive around it. And he was thrilled to see that in the Google maps, I'm not going to give out your address or anything like that, even though it's your old, we'll give it out after you move. But, uh, he noted that your, um, your big four by four is parked out front and your RV is parked around or the RV is, I guess, no longer there. It was parked around the side. And I noticed when he sent me the link to that, that I could, I could look into the, your truck out front and I could see all the stuff that you had like sitting on the dashboard and, and everything. Yeah. And I explored your entire neighborhood up and down. What did you think of it? You know, I mean, it looks very, um, it looks very much like East side Austin to me. Mm -hmm. Like the landscape Mm -hmm. is, I don't know what I was imagining Seattle would or look like. I thought it would be maybe more foresty. I imagine it, you're like living deep in a forest for some reason, you know, with like windy mm-hmm. little forest roads and hills and, you know, like a meadow off to the side. And But it looks like a regular neighborhood, just some neighborhood in East Austin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the geography of Seattle is, uh, you know, there are, there are, Seven hills in Seattle are traditionally <laughs> were just seven, just like Rome. Uh-huh. 
And, uh, and so Seattle neighborhoods are all confined by geography in a weird way. You know, there's water on all sides. The, the town is built on a very narrow isthmus and there are these giant hills that are, uh, you know, that are bisected by waterways. And so there's no, like the, the, the nice thing about cities that are built on the flat is like neighborhoods just kind of trend into other neighborhoods. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I'm driving down this street and now I'm in Lakewood and drive a little ways further. And now you're in Brentwood and now you're in Briarwood. And in Seattle, it's like, no, you're either on the top of this hill. You're on one of four sides of that hill or you're at the bottom of that hill or you're at the beginning of the next hill. Hmm. And, so my house is on top of a hill and every direction you go from where I live is down. Right. Okay. That's implied in being on top of a hill. Yeah. Um, but it means that everywhere, you know, like my neighborhood doesn't really have a, it's not, it's not proximate to anything. There's no neighborhood there. It's just, um, it's just like a, a readout and other hills have communities on the top of them and then communities at the bottom of them. Mm-hmm. My hill doesn't really have a community at the top of it, but the, but the weirdness of the neighborhoods, um, it's really it's until you've lived in Seattle for a, for a while it's easy to get confused about where you are and not because it's a big grid that stretches out forever it's because there just aren't that many there's not that much connective tissue between the neighborhoods like if you're on Queen Anne Hill and you want to get to Capitol Hill you can stand at the top of Queen Anne and look over and see Capitol Hill and vice versa it's just right there but to get there, there's only like two roads that two roads in the whole city that you could use. You could go down to Mercer and go up the other side, or you could go to Denny and go up. But th- those are two giant hills and major neighborhoods. And there's no, the, the, there's just, um, there's so much stuff in the way. There's a big lake in the way. They're free. They're, they're just these crazy little bottlenecks. So what ends up happening is if you live on Capitol Hill, which I did for years, it's just really hard to get to Queen Anne and there's no reason to go there. So you just never, I mean, I, I probably went to Queen Anne three times in 15 years. Why would I, why would I go over there? It's all the way over there. Now, as the crow flies, it's about a mile away. But, uh, like energetically or in in a mental geography of Seattle, Queen Anne is just kind of an island that I had to go around to get to other places. But there are people who live in Seattle who've lived here their whole lives and everything they do revolves around Queen Anne Hill. Mm. It's their whole universe. And I know those people because we meet in other parts of town. I see them downtown. And I'm like, hey, my friend. And they go, hey, headed back to Queen Anne. And I go, good luck. 
So it wasn't until, well, honestly, it wasn't until I got a car and I didn't have a car for the first 10 years I lived in Seattle. Yeah. Didn't, didn't need one. It wasn't until I got a car that I even would have considered going to Queen Anne. And even then it felt like, why am I over here? They're going to get me. Even now when I'm up there, I'm like, they know I'm not from here. They're going to get me. Do <laughs> you think they would care? These Queen Anne people. No, they're not going to care. With their Queen Anne values. We would like to say thank you very much to Brooke Linen. Brooke Linen, you know, you spend about a third of your life in your sheets. It's true. And it's about time for a betting upgrade. You know, I was at a hotel recently and it was a nicer hotel. I don't often get to spend uh, time in a nice hotel, but they had the most amazing sheets. And I remember thinking to myself, wouldn't it be nice if we could have this kind of sheets at home? Guess what? That's what Brooklinen is all about. That's what they do. And now I have the Brooklinen sheets and I no longer have uh, sheet envy. They can have that. They can run with that. That's theirs for them if they want it. But you know what? Brooklinen is awesome and they really do make the very best sheets. They actually won the best online betting category from good housekeeping and uh, they've got so many they've got 35,000 more than 35,000 five-star reviews more than any other online betting company if you're looking for some new sheets and you know what you should be the sheets you have are probably not the most amazing sheets in the world like the Brooklyn and ones and you should really go and check these things out they have the mission and their mission is to make five-star hotel quality sheets more affordable and easy to order these are luxury sheets without the luxury markup. Most bedding is marked up as much as 300%. You can get tons of different colors and styles. It's not just like your plain white sheets, although I like plain white sheets and that's what I use, but you can mix these up and get all kinds of, you can have fun with it. Why not have fun with it? But they have a special offer. You can get the best sheets too. It's at brooklinen.com, B-R-O-O-K, linen, L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. And this offer is just for y'all. 10% off your first order and free shipping if you use the promo code ROADWORK. You'll sleep better, you'll feel better, your bed will look better. Go to brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K, brooklinen.com. Promo code is ROADWORK. And you'll get 10% off your first order and free shipping. And they are very confident that you're going to like these. They have a lifetime warranty on their sheets, their comforters, and now they've got towels. So go check it out. And thanks very much to Brooklinen for making this episode possible. Sure, they'll care. Nah, they don't. They'll say, they'll say, wait a minute, what are you doing up here? What are you doing over here? You're not dressed, right? You're not dressed for this. I'd be like, I'm just passing through. I don't even want to be here. I no. want to just keep going. I just no. want to be somewhere else. <sighs> so how does not having a, a home base affect you? Like emotionally, it has to, right? I think that for my entire adult life, I have worked very hard to deny that anything affects me emotionally. Yes, we had a long conversation once and I asked you how you something like that. And you said, I'm, I do not, I'm not, I'm non-emotional. And I've gradually been acknowledging that I'm very emotional. Yeah. And that 
when I get emotionally affected by things and then claim that I'm not, all that's doing is forcing my emotions through tiny little holes um, on the sides of things mm-hmm. and creating major, major problems for mm-hmm. me and everybody around me. Um, and so acknowledging that I have emotions uh, is important, but it's still very difficult. And now I'm in a situation in my life, not just to do with the fact that I'm moving or um, all the things that have happened to me this spring that have pointed at my emotions and uh, but but just because I'm also I'm 50, um, and I have an eight-year-old, that I I I need to feel my emotions openly and process them in real time, and I don't. And I don't know how. And I mean, so is this I'm, something I'm, that you've been like consciously trying to not feel emotions like in a, in a very conscious way? You know what I mean? Like, are, did you sort of make a decision where you said, I'm going to block off my emotions? Well, no. I mean, I, I, I did it when I was a little kid. Yeah. Like is because a, a protective that, self-preservation kind of thing. Yeah, right. And then as, as I got older and found that whenever I let my guard down and showed emotion, uh, someone attacked me and tried to murder me with feelings. Yeah. You know, like in my early 20s when I was trying to when – I, when I was trying to get to know – women and figure out what my relationship to them was, I felt like, uh, really, really outmatched by everyone outmatched by any woman I was interested in outmatched by any guy I was in competition with. And every time I showed what I felt like was some vulnerability, the result was that I was murdered. Mm. Um, and it was Obvious I was doing it wrong. No one had taught me. I didn't have any role models. I rejected the standard model, but I didn't, but I wasn't able to replace it with anything. I mean, I had a whole philosophy of how men and women should be together and how they should, you know, how we should all live in peace and harmony and, and, uh, you know, mutually make the world a more egalitarian and better place. But that was not. Uh, that did not help me. My, my philosophy was not shared by anyone. It didn't seem. And when I would go on dates or try to be a boy, I just got, I don't know. I just felt a constant feeling of shame and in, um, like I was just an, an incompetent and, that hardened me off even more. And I was already a hardened little child. Yeah. 
it just made me feel like I don't understand other people. I do not, I'm not giving them what they want. I'm not getting from them what I need. And, and it made me not want to reveal myself all that much more. I think in high school there, I had a, I had a moment where I realized that, that, that my sense of humor and my quick wittedness could be weaponized and that would protect me from other kids. And that worked for me for a long time, just weaponized humor and, and, uh, and wit. And I guess it wasn't until my thirties that I felt like I started to live in the world in a way that didn't, that where I didn't feel like a complete alien, but largely it was because I had crossed about 85% of all human activity off the list. I was not going to, I could not or would not get married or um, have a job <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, like I had just eliminated all these uh, all these behaviors. And so with a very small world that I felt like I could manage, I started to be able to manage within that world. Like, okay, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to get a good job. I'm not trying to meet somebody and fall in love and get married. None of those things are, are possible options for me. So, What's left is I'm trying to be friends with the girls I like and hopefully um, when one of them wants to kiss me, I'm not going to run like that seemed if I, if I could manage to do that, right? I could hang in there, you know, and I need to make enough money to eat. And so I can get a job, some like, some 25 hour a week job. And if I can hold it down and not get fired, then I'll be able to have, you know, live in a, live in a shared apartment space, you know, just like super, super, super basic stuff. And boy, that in a way, like the systems I built then are the ones I'm still living by. Um, and they're just not enough anymore. I feel like not very, good at life still because I still am like, I'm not trying to fall in love or be loved. I'm just trying to not run away and I'm just trying to make enough money to get the things I need. I've got no long-term plan. I've got no bucket list. I'm just, I'm just making it, you know? And, uh, and so when I think about my emotions, because, you know, a lot of this I think has stemmed from the fact that I started to, to have anxiety attacks this fall, uh, last fall. I haven't had one in a long time. I mean, when I was in Hawaii, I, I've, I felt one coming on, mm. but 
you know, it's been a month, I guess. And they were coming pretty fast uh, in the fall and winter. And this is even, I guess, this the bipolar medication doesn't address that? No. No, well, it was all brand new. I mean, I've been taking the bipolar medicine for three years. Right. And I had, I'd never had an anxiety attack uh, that I identified as such. Right. What, what, was, it, what like was it like? What did it, what did it feel like? Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. I mean, I've had, know, I had, I mean, I have something called generalized anxiety disorder, which is not anxiety attacks. Um, but I've had one of those. I had one true anxiety attack once and I still remember it vividly. It was horrible. Yeah. I mean, what was for the, me, what I'm, was the trigger of this for you? Do you, can you connect it to something that like happened with you in, in your life or was it just a buildup of things or. I have a lot of claustrophobia and I've always managed it, but, uh, and I've also, you know, I've always been kind of, uh, I've, I've had a lot of sinus infections in my life. You know, I was yeah. allergic as a kid and we had a cat that slept on my chest. And so I always was, I always had a stuffy nose, but lately somewhere in my head, I made a connection between, um, a sinus infection and, and a lack of ability to breathe. And I never really, I didn't get claustrophobia from a sinus infection it was, I mean, nobody likes a sinus infection. No, I, ex- it, I know exactly what you're talking about, where when you can't breathe through your nose, there can be, the, especially at night for some reason, there can be this like impending feeling of, I guess, claustrophobia. I think I know what you're, where you're trapped. You feel trapped. You can't, and you'd like, you like want to fly out of your own skin. Yeah. And there's nothing to do, you know, like, like I have all the antihistamines in the world. I have all the, I, I, you know, I do everything I can to keep my passageways open. But in the last year, and I think what happened was I was on an airplane and I had a stuffy nose and the pressure of the airplane in you know, in my sinuses and in my ears. And I just, I've had them my whole life. So I just know, Oh, I have this now and this is going to be a week long thing or, you know, it's going to be 10 days before I get my head clear again. And I was on this airplane and I just, I started to panic because there wasn't anything I could do to get my head clear. And Having panicked once, then any time I started to feel a stuffy nose come on in the last nine months, it was attended by this panic. And and it got to the point then that all I had to do was think about Mm. getting a stuffy nose because I knew I was going to get one eventually. And if I was going to get one eventually, then maybe I was, I was going to get one today. And if I was going to get one today, then I wouldn't be able to breathe. And I would, and you know, like, um, 
And so then my mind started running all kinds of scenarios where I wouldn't be able to breathe. What if I needed surgery all of a sudden? Um, what if I, you know, what would I do if I went to the dentist? I haven't been to the dentist since this time because the last time I went to the dentist, she put something in my mouth and I was, I sat straight up in the chair and I was like, nope, no thanks, can't do it. She was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, this is just normal dentistry. And I was like, yeah, but you can't put that thing in my mouth. <laughs> and so she did, <laughs> she did the, the, the procedure and I was like, I will give you plenty of warning if I'm going to jump up out of this chair, but, but I am not, you cannot like in any way restrain my ability to open and close my mouth. Right. I'll, I will hold it open for you, but don't put a, any kind of thing in there. But so what happens if somebody needs to do that? You know, what happens if, uh, and the thing is once your mind gets into like what happens, I just start, I just get OCD about it. I just mm. start thinking about all the things that could happen that would deny me breath, which is a lot of things. And you, and at 50 years old, you start to really be conscious of the fragility of your body sure. and of life. Yeah. And so I recognize, so I start tying my own fragility and all of our fragility to my panic so that all of a sudden, all these things like, well, what happened? What would happen if somebody came, uh, ran a red light and crashed into my car? Well, that's a thing you think about. If you're a driver, you're conscious of it. You're you're making sure no one, you know, you look both ways before you go through an intersection, even if you have the green light, because you just don't want somebody coming out of nowhere. Yeah. But all of a sudden, the idea of somebody coming out of nowhere, crashing into my car, I am injured in such a way that I am now either trapped in the car or oh i see or in a situation where i'm you know like all of these all of these things they just one after another you can tie so many fears mm. which in the past weren't fears they were just awarenesses but once they get tied to being denied breath for me which i mean i swear to you you could tie almost anything to it then, then, then this, this anxiety, uh, it's very difficult to uncouple it from an idea once it's coupled to it. And this isn't, this has never been a feature of my life before. I do not have anxiety. I'm not afraid. I go into all things, you know, unafraid. But now there's this there's this um, fear and I'm afraid that it is creeping into areas of my life where I never had fear before. Mm. Now, is the anxiety a product of the fact that every other aspect of my life is up in the air right now that I, that I have voluntarily like taken away my home? Everything's, changing, you know, I mean, last year I worked really, really hard on my podcasts and my podcast empire. And as you and I have discussed many times, um, a lot of that work didn't pay off. It paid off in the form of podcasts I'm very proud of 
it paid off creatively. It paid off with in the relationships that I've that I've built and the shows I've built. But really only Roadwork and Roderick on the Line really generated any money. And Roadwork and Roderick on the Line were both shows that were very easy for me to do. They didn't I just pick up the phone, talk about what was on my mind. The other two shows, the two new shows I developed, Friendly Fire and Omnibus, required a lot of work, a lot of research and preparation and building out a studio where I could have my co-hosts come to my house. Omnibus, you know, we do two shows a week. And both of those shows really promised to um, produce income. They were both on big networks. Right. Whereas Roderick on the Line and Roadwork are independent shows. You know, Roadwork isn't, are we on the 5x5 five five network? I guess we are. Yeah, we are. are. Sure, sure. But you know, it's not. We don't. We don't think of it that way. We're not like, listen, no, it's five I, by five. No, we don't. I don't. I used to do that a lot, and I don't. I don't do that anymore. No. And I mean, Roderick on the line is the is the consummate independent podcast. Sure. Anyway, I wasn't prepared for how much stress that would put on me that I had done this thing. I'd made this commitment to podcasting as a, as a form of work. And, and it was, and in, by professionalizing it and making good shows, I, I, I felt like I had turned a corner and was going to go into being a 50 year old with a, with this sense of accomplishment and a feeling of pride that I was doing, that I wasn't just going hand to mouth, that I, that I did have a plan that by next year, this time I would blah, 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 blah. Instead of just like, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week. Just get up and ride that magic silver surfboard into space. But to have done all that work to lay that, to lay that groundwork to basically, you know, be a, entrepreneur and to have at the end of the year um, to have those shows produce a negligible income right was devastating in a way that I imagine you know your serial entrepreneur gets inured to if you're somebody that makes a five million dollar investment in a thing and then that business goes up, uh, you know, goes under and you, you know, you dust yourself off and you start raising money for your next business venture. Or if you're a filmmaker that, you know, leverages everything to make a film and the film is a flop and you just go back to doing it again, try and put that money together and put out another movie. And right. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of people that their whole career is just one flop after another. But I, and you know, and I think I credit, I have to credit myself with the fact that at no point along the way did I say, well, this isn't working. I, I quit because I really liked both the things I made and, 
And so in some, in a lot of situations, I was the one that was like, no, we can't quit. This is, this is great. We're making a great thing. We have to just, we have to just figure it out. We have to figure a path. We have to find a path. Um, and I'm glad, and I feel like maybe this year will be different, but all of it, all of it comes down to how do I admit that I have feelings and that those don't make me vulnerable to being murdered? Mm. Like, you know, to say to a girl, hey, I really like you. I like hanging out with you a lot. Has always filled me with dread um, because as soon as you voice it, I, I, it's almost like now you just wait for the other shoe to fall. You wait for that person to not even say, hey, I, actually, I'm not that into it, but you just wait for that person to ghost you. And I don't, I, I don't want to be ghosted. So when I like somebody, I go, hey, cool. Great to see you. Come by anytime. You know, like, like, a, like a comical level of teenage fake cash. Hmm. You know, like, hey, what's up? Oh, cool. Great. No, no. Great to see you. Come in. Let's hang. Um, and that was... That was hard one for me to the, even the ability to do that because that's, I mean, that's, that sucks, you know? Yeah. But how do you get to a place where you're like, Hey, you know, I really like you without them saying like, Oh great. Well, let's get a shared bank account where I'm like, what? Or for them to say like, Oh, you really like me? Oh, mm. <laughs> Cool. You know, like I don't, I can't, I don't want to either of those things. I don't want, I don't, and I've never been able to work out a situation with somebody where I wasn't frantically explaining all the ways in which I didn't, all the ways in which I wasn't capable of whatever it was they needed, <laughs> you know? Um, how do I say, Hey, this really matters to me. Like the, this, this show that I'm doing with you, Dan, like it matters to me. I don't want to stop doing it. I don't want to lose it. Uh, I mean, that puts me in, in a position of vulnerability. Right. You could say, sure. Oh, I've, I, I've been thinking about it and I'm not getting very much out of this or I'm getting really busy lately, you know, and I know you're not going to, but, but those feelings of abandonment or of not of unworthiness are in me so deeply from, from age three on, that a lot of the swagger that I that I bring to life is just the swagger of somebody that taught himself from toddlerhood that if he gave a fuck about anything that somebody was going to take it away. So mm -hmm. he just doesn't give a fuck about anything. Yeah. Well, God, that doesn't, that's not how, that's not what I want to teach my kid, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, and the only way I can not teach her that is if I don't, practice it. And the only way for me to not practice it is to care about things and be honest about that. But that just, ugh, how awful.
how awful it must be to care about things and let people know. <sighs> I definitely understand what you mean because you are taking a real risk. You know, you're, you're taking a risk and you're opening yourself up to, well, you're being vulnerable. You're opening yourself up to that. But I, I just don't, I don't think you've got that much to lose by doing it. I think it's worth it. That's the thing is I, I really think it's worth it is that the, the, the upside to being a little bit open and to sharing that kind of thing is I think potentially really, really big and really, really rewarding, you know? Well, yeah, but this is, this is it so ingrained in me. Um, ingrained and also reinforced. And, and I don't know, it's, it's, I get a lot of flack in the, in my family for having a type of girl that I like. Yeah. What, I mean, we've talked about this a little, but can you redefine what your, what your type is? Well, I mean, I reject that I do. Because I think of myself as someone who likes everybody and recognizes beauty in everybody. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, my sister will laugh and laugh and laugh and she'll say, oh, so it's just a coincidence that the last 50 girls you've dated or the last 15 girls you've dated, if you put pictures of them in an album, you're an, the the normal a normal person would look through that album and think they were all pictures of the same person. <laughs> Is it, it? Do you do you agree with that <laughs> well, assessment? No, no, except every once in a while, uh, I see a picture of somebody that I'm close to, and then I realize, oh, it's a picture of somebody else that I'm close to. Mm. Uh, it just it's weird that in that angle, like you know, it's it's weird, but. But it isn't their appearance that unites them. It's um, it's a quality of inaccessibility. And so I'm always in in fear in my relationships uh, that even when it's one hundred percent clear, that the person that I'm with is very into me and wants to be with me. I'm pretty sure that they're just faking. I'm pretty sure that they're faking. I don't know why they're faking. I don't know what they're getting out of it. I don't know I don't know, I mean, why why they bother. And I'm always kind of quizzing them. Mm-hmm. Are you faking? Do you, do you want to be here? And they're like, yes, again, for the thousandth time. <laughs> and I go, yeah, I mean, I believe you. But really, though? <laughs> and a lot of it is... You know, my mom filled me with a lot of ideas when I was young about how women interact with men. Mm-hmm. And those ideas have been very, very hard for me to surmount 
over the course of my life, even knowing that my mom is not, doesn't have a super healthy worldview and really didn't when I was a kid. But for instance, the, you know, the old canard that the number one thing that women look for in men is a sense of humor. I don't like that. I don't take that as a compliment because I don't want to be liked for my sense of humor. You know, like I want to be desired. I want to be coveted Mm -hmm. as a, as an object of beauty. And so I don't want somebody to overlook, um, that I am gross because I'm funny. Mm. And because, when the, you know, because well, why? Because one day you might not be funny. No, I'll always be funny. No, it's because I don't like the notion. I don't like the notions. I do not feel like, for instance, when I started to develop power and I always had power mm-hmm. and some of that power just is, I mean, a lot of it is just innate, but when I, when I realized that I could weaponize my wit, that gave me power in a teenage context. I couldn't be pushed around anymore. But also I could generate energy. I could, uh, I had authority. And as my life has gone on, I've developed a lot of authority and a lot of just, just power. It's, it's, um, it's present in me Mm -hmm. so that if I walk into a room of 30 people, it's clear that even if none of them ever have heard of me or know me or anything, it's just clear that I have it and I see it reflected in other people. So I know it's there. I'm not asserting it. I don't walk in and say, all right, everyone <laughs> gather around. Just, it's just, it's just present in me. But the, the, that power as an attractive force, that power as something that is, um, that's sexy that also, uh, I don't like, I don't like the idea that someone would say, I'm really attracted to your power mm. because I feel like that's, um, that what they're saying is they're not attracted to me in all the other ways. Right. Because you see these, you see these, these portraits in human life of a kind of, shabby, gross, older guy who has money with a younger, attractive, manic pixie dream wife. (laughs) And we all look at it and go, ugh, there's something kind of gross about that. Now, maybe that manic pixie dream wife really loves it, loves the man. But in our, in our, uh, sort of 20th century collective unconscious, there's a feeling, and I think it's based in something prehistoric, which is that man and a woman had a little baby, you know, that, that, that are, that are idealized Adam and Eve version of, of a couple right. are that they're right. roughly the same age. Maybe he's two years older 
and they're roughly the same attractiveness and from the same culture and from the same time. And that if you get too much deviation in any of those factors, that the relationship starts to become grotesque. If, um, you know, the man should be bigger than the woman, but if he's dramatically bigger Hmm. or if he's not bigger, both of those things then become oddities. The man should be a little older, but if he's much older or if he's younger, it's an oddity. And you collect enough of those oddities, and it's all cultural. None of it matters, really. You collect enough of those oddities, and and for me, like my, my insecurity is such that I start to feel like they're pretending to want to be with me right? for other reasons because they're willing to overlook the grotesquery in order to uh, because they are somehow like baffled by the by their attraction to the wit or to the power when what I want to be is you know loved as a as a whole person. And so I'll try and with my partners, I try to elicit compliments, you know, and I, and I hate doing it, but I'm like, what do you think of this mustache? <laughs> this, this type of thing. <laughs> right. Right. I'll be standing in front of the mirror and I'll go, what do you think of this mustache? And almost never do I get, I really like that mustache and I think it looks great on you. Almost always what I get is, well, you managed to pull it off somehow. <laughs> Which is not, that's not the best. Well, and what, it, and, and I think that they mean it as a compliment that even that dumb mustache, I pull off because of my wit and power. Ah, right. No one else could wear that dumb mustache. Except right. you well, managed. it's horrible, really horrible, but you're, you're making it work somehow. You make it work because that's your magic. Right. And and all I want is it looks great and you look great and I love the way you look. That's all anyone wants. Small stuff. And I'm sure there are a lot of lot of people out there whose relationship is based on how they look mostly and they really wish that somebody would compliment them on their ideas every once in a while. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, I know I'm pretty, but didn't I do a good job? Right. And I have, and I have the opposite. And yet it is very real to me because I know I have, a, I have wit and I know that, the, and I see that I see my power reflected in other people. I know I'm going to be fine. I'm not worried about am I going to make it or am I going to, if I, if I walked out the door right now and someone was standing there and said, all you have is what's on your body right now. And that's it. And everyone, you know, is gone from the world. Mm. Good luck. Like you've got a coat and you've got 200 bucks in your wallet and every person you ever knew is gone. 
and you're just walking now down First Avenue South, and there's nowhere to you. There's no one to call and nowhere to go. I would be fine. Like, n- no question in my mind. Mm. So I'm not afraid, but, but I, you know, and it may, it may be that the first person that ever says, um, like, I'm not really attracted to your sense of humor or your, or your masculine power. I just think you're really foxy and I kind of overlook your wit (laughs) I, that may be the person I end up marrying, you know, <laughs> just because it's like, really, you don't think I'm funny or no, not really. I just think you're, I mean, no, the problem is that that would never work. Right. I mean, they need to think I'm funny too, but all of this is like small child insecurity that has blown up into fully adult sized insecurity in an adult body, but it's all connected to the fact that I never felt like anybody wanted me really. Definitely nobody wanted me as I was, you know, my mom and dad loved me and they, they wanted me. They just wanted me to be very different than I was. Yeah. We don't want, but we don't want that from you anymore. We're happy with you the way you are. Well, that's very hard for me to accept. Because I because I internalized it, I'm not happy with who I am. Um, well, who who you know, is I, though? I, who is? Well, I don't know. Some people are. Some people are. I'm, I would like to meet the person who's really happy with the way they are. That's, you know, like I've met some really, really, really experienced Buddhist meditators who are, you know, they've been practicing since the '60s, and they're in their like '70s now. They're pretty happy with the way they are, but that's the exception. Well, or all the people that are, that never, even for a moment doubted what they were doing. I don't think that's anybody though. Oh, sure. But I mean, there are a lot of people that don't ask why. Mm -hmm. And so when they get done with work, they say, now I'm now I got the weekend. And the weekend isn't supposed to accomplish anything. Right. It just is like now they get to do what they want and then they gotta get back in the saddle. But they don't they they never like step back and go, Why am I doing any of this? Why are any of us doing any of this? What would be a better system? How could I arrange the traffic lights so that they allowed traffic to flow freely and yet never impeded someone who was just trying to get down second Avenue at 5 PM? Like they're just not, that's they're They're not spending their imagination capital on trying to figure out how to make the city work better. And so they don't then carry the burden of, the traffic lights with them from traffic light to traffic light. Like I feel 
I feel capable of solving the traffic light question if I had the right team and the right resources. And so the fact that I'm not doing that is, um, it makes it so that I don't, I, I can't drive through town just accepting the traffic lights as part of nature. Because they're not, you know, I recognize the human hand behind all these things and, and that human hand is connected to a, to an intention and that intention is derived from a set of myths and discoveries and science. And that is a product of, uh, you know, at a certain point, like something metaphysical and I want to know about all that stuff, and I feel a personal responsibility about it. That doesn't belong to me, or it's not my responsibility. The, the arc of human history that led us to conclude that, that the traffic light at 4th and James should be timed thusly is not up to me. Right. I can't go, I can't go back. I can't intervene. No one is going to appoint me chief of traffic lights at any time, and I'm not interested in it enough to devote the rest of my life to becoming chief of traffic lights. So I need to just put that into a I, – I was about to say put it into a shoebox and put it in my basement, but no, that's not where it lives. I've already got enough things in shoeboxes in my basement that aren't my responsibility. <laughs> 